in London, this is The Economist, with our tasting menu, a selection of some of the tastiest morsels from the week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu this week, eye-watering transfer fees in the world of football, baths running out in Japan, and the best puns in the world. But first, the death of the internal combustion engine was our cover line this week. Human inventiveness has still not found a mechanical process to replace horses as the propulsion for vehicles, lamented Le Petit Journal, the French newspaper, in December 1893. Its answer was to organise the Paris-Rouen race for horseless carriages, held the following July. The clear winner was the internal combustion engine. Over the next century, it would go on to power industry and change the world. But it faces a new electric rival, and, our leader argued, it's on the way out as a result. Rapid gains in battery technology favour electric motors instead. The potential revolution could have consequences for traditional car ownership. Electric propulsion, along with ride-hailing and self-driving technology, could mean that ownership is largely replaced by transport as a service, in which fleets of cars offer rides on demand. On the most extreme estimates, that could shrink the industry by as much as 90%. Also welcome will be the reduced carbon emissions, but there's less good news for existing industries in both manufacturing and oil, so governments will need to keep up with the curve. Overall, though, our leader argued, we should welcome the shift to going electric. Driverless electric cars in the 21st century are likely to improve the world in profound and unexpected ways just as vehicles powered by internal combustion engines did in the 20th. But it will be a bumpy road. Buckle up. Time to move from the internal combustion engine to the internally combusting government of Ecuador, where the president has embarked on a major shake-up, and we covered that in our Americas section. Will Lenin Moreno be his own man, or will he be the puppet of his forceful predecessor, Rafael Correa? Ecuadorians have been wondering that since Mr Moreno became president on May 24th. An answer came on August 3rd when Mr Moreno removed the vice president, Jorge Glass, from any active role in government. Mr Glass has been friends with Mr Correa since they were Boy Scouts and was seen as the former president's agent. Mr Moreno has already clashed with his vice president when he criticised overspending by the previous administration. His heresies provoked Mr Glass to write an open letter on August 2nd, accusing him of betraying their political movement, Alianza Pais, of manipulating economic data and of handing over public media to the private sector. It's an argument that might run much deeper than mere politics. Mr Glass may have been trying to shift attention away from corruption allegations levelled against him. President Moreno has positioned himself well to distance himself from his deputy and abandon the path of his predecessor too, but... The president cannot get rid of Mr Glass entirely unless Congress impeaches him by a two-thirds vote. He will take over if Mr Moreno is incapacitated. Ecuadorians are praying for the president's health. Well, if Ecuador is in danger of going under, many Japanese will be losing their chance, as an article in our Asia section delved into the decline of the traditional bathhouse. Step from the fraying lobby into the tiled interior of Akebono-yu, Tokyo's oldest sento, or public bathhouse, and there is an almost church-like silence, interrupted only by the tinkle of spring water and the odd groan of pleasure 
from one of the elderly customers sinking into its tubs. The centos were once inundated with demand. Now they're finding it more difficult to make a splash. Until the frenetic modernisation in the run-up to the Olympics in 1964, 40% of homes in Tokyo lacked baths, so millions of people depended on centos for their nightly soak. Those days are long gone. Across the city's skyline, the bathhouses' distinctive chimney stacks are disappearing. Those that have kept their heads above water are still struggling to soak up new customers. For Sento owners, tapping into a changing market poses a big challenge. Teruo Shimada, the owner of Akebono Yu, says customers will no longer come just to get clean. You have to give them something extra. His premises have become something of a social club for pensioners. Some sip beer and sake in the restaurant while watching sumo on a large-screen television. But alas, even if they keep their businesses going, it doesn't mean the next generation will follow in their wake. His daughter wants nothing to do with the trade, with its long hours and uncertain rewards, laments Mr Shimada. Once he could have arranged her marriage and nudged his son-in-law into taking over, but that's all in the past. After 19 generations in the family, he fears that Akebono Yu may die with him. If you fancy a nice hot or even a cool bath right now, there's no better aquatic companion than Economist Radio. As we move to Economist Radio highlights of the week. In the week ahead, we looked at the emerging nuclear crisis between North Korea and America. Matthew, you were responsible for our cover package last week. On the cover, we had a picture of a mushroom cloud and superimposed on it the faces of Donald Trump and the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. I don't think you thought that this was going to play out so fast. I mean, we thought that there was a possibility of, uh, for example, loose lips or misunderstandings between the two countries escalating things very dangerously. And are we seeing this now? Yes, I I sort of feel now that perhaps uh, March 2019, which was when the kind of opening shots in this uh, war scenario begin, may be looking too far away, but also, of course, we still hope and still expect that you know, nothing of that kind will kind of happen. The intention of the piece, though, was to show how with actually neither side wanting anything like an all-out war, that political pressures can lead to them doing things which start to bring those possibilities about, and then how the kind of logic of escalation leads you from quite sort of, you know, modest steps into a very terrible war, ending with an exchange of nuclear weapons only too quickly. You'll remember we heard earlier about our cover leader exploring batteries in the electric car. Well, in Wednesday's Babbage Science Programme, the piece's author, Henry Trix, explained the thinking behind it. There's been an extraordinary transformation in the battery industry, but it's not like a revolution. It's like a transformation, an evolution that's taken about 30 years, but steadily that battery has got cheaper, more capacity safer and it's evolved to this point that it's becoming essential not just to the auto industry but essential to the energy industry it's quite the transformation how were batteries able to do that 
Was there any technical breakthroughs that it needed to pass through in order to become as powerful as they are today where they weren't in the past? It was a question of fine-tuning the chemistry of the cathode, the anode, and the electrolyte that through a process of relentless fine-tuning has just become more powerful. There is still expected to be another big breakthrough, possibly within the next 10 or 15 years, no one really knows, but towards batteries that are substantially quicker to charge and can last for substantially longer periods and are much, much safer. We're not done with innovation in this week's tasting menu, oh no, as we fly as fast as we possibly can over to our science section. And there, an article took on the challenges of hypersonic air travel. Whoosh. Friction burns. And the friction of the air on something travelling at five times the speed of sound burns hot. The leading edge of such an object can easily reach a temperature of 3,000 degrees Celsius. Inconveniently, that is above the melting point of most materials used by engineers, which makes it hard to design things like wings and nose cones for aircraft intended to achieve hypersonic velocities. Of course, that won't stop them trying. The world's air forces would love such planes. And for civilians, at least for those with deep pockets, the idea of being able to jet in a couple of hours from Britain to Australia sounds extremely attractive. Among those lured are Ping Xiao and his colleagues at the University of Manchester in England and in Central South University in Changsha, China. The scientists are experimenting with ceramics, which have far higher melting points than metal. The problem is they're also more brittle. Dr Xiao's aim, therefore, has been to add flexibility to ceramic materials without lowering their melting points. By mixing carbon with carbon fibre and then giving it a carbide coating, they think they've cracked the case. And it's not just planes that could benefit. Beside its use in hypersonic aircraft, the new carbon carbide composite may also, with appropriate adjustments to its recipe, be used to extend the lives of reusable rockets and gas turbines. But it is the thought that the plane you board at Heathrow at 7am will deliver you to Sydney two hours later, just in time for dinner, that will excite most people. But we move now from speedy wings to speedy wingers. I'm talking about the Brazilian football star Neymar, whose vast transfer fee caught the attention of our finance section. For football clubs, August is often the costliest month, when they make vast bids for each other's players. This year has been particularly lavish. On August 3rd, Paris Saint-Germain, or PSG, a French team, signed Neymar da Silva Santos Jr., a Brazilian forward from Barcelona for €222 million. Euros. On the face of it, Neymar has cost PSG a disproportionate sum. In the betting markets, his arrival has boosted PSG's implied chances of winning the Champions League, Europe's most coveted club competition, but only from around 5.5% to about 9%. But then... That does not make Neymar a bad investment. The goals he scores may matter less than the gloss he lends to the club's brand and the sponsors he will lure. PSG may also be eyeing a big payday outside Europe, with a growing passion for football in China of particular interest. If Neymar unlocks new markets as well as defences, 
then PSG may have backed a winner. That is, if they don't miss their window of opportunity, which shouldn't be a problem if they're sufficiently goal-orientated, forward-thinking and focused on net gains. That's for all of you who hate our puns. But enough about football. I blame the producer and we head to a review in the Books and Arts section that has a totally different championship, oh no, on its agenda. Last week's issue of this paper contained the following headlines. Rooms for Improvement in a story about British housing. Though Mooch is taken, Mooch abides on the firing of Anthony Scaramucci and LIBOR pains on interbank loan rates. The Economist is not alone in its taste for wordplay. Our colleagues at the Financial Times routinely sneak subtle jokes into their headlines. July 17th, why China's global shipping ambitions will not easily be contained while those at the tabloids indulge themselves more obviously. On the arrest of a famous golfer for drink-driving, DUI of the tiger. English makes for good wordplay, and some practitioners are getting serious, going as far as to start their own pun championships, including the O. Henry Ponoff in Texas, which bills itself as a world championship. These events caught the eye of Joe Berkowitz, an editor at a business magazine who began following the events and researching the art form. The outcome? A way with words. A faintly anthropological examination of puns and the people who make them. The chief attraction of these competitions, he reports, is that they create a space for something people feel like they're not supposed to like and ought not to do. But just because puns are simple and often juvenile doesn't mean making them has to be. Puns demand intelligence, creativity and general knowledge. The best draw on cultural references, allude to several things at the same time and are intricately constructed, such as the one about Mahatma Gandhi, who walked barefoot a lot and often fasted, leading to bad breath, thus making him a super-calloused, fragile mystic hexed by halitosis. The ultimate value is in the eye of the beholder. A pun, like porn, is defined less by intention than by reception. One contestant at the O. Henry, on the topic of birds, told the audience, Beak kind to me, don't thrush to judgement, I'm not robbing anyone, hawking anything, talon tales out of school, ducking responsibilities or emulating anyone. Only the reader should decide whether that deserves a prize or social ostrichism. And next week in Books and Arts, we'll be looking at a new biography of Freud, though I'll confess that in my loyalties, I'll be forever young. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. Don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue and you can find our other podcasts too online. Do keep sending us your feedback by email to radioeconomist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Thank you.